This is Phantom Power. Episode 15. It's May 4th, 2017, and I'm in room 311 of the English Philosophy Building. Room 311 is a windowless closet crowded with a conference table and rolling chairs that currently contain the five members of my dissertation committee. A radio scholar, a romanticist, an 18th centuryist, education theorist, and Victorianist. So we're here to talk about your prospectus, and um, I, I welcome my delightful colleagues. And uh, we're, you know, we're, we're interested in raising constructive questions um, that will you know, help you with uh, clarifying the focus, the scope, and the process, because the process so, is so interesting. It's the job of these five people to advise me over the next months or more likely years as I write my dissertation, which is the only thing standing between me and my doctorate in English. What we're here to discuss today isn't my dissertation per se, but rather my prospectus, a Microsoft Word document spanning anywhere from six to 20 pages that describes the dissertation, the one I haven't written yet. In this way, think of the prospectus as a sort of dissertation permission slip, a sheet of paper that, once signed, allows me to climb on board the bus and head into the field of academic literary criticism. And if I don't earn my committee's signatures at the end of this meeting, then I guess I'm going to have to stay behind and eat my bagged lunch all by myself. Hey everyone, it's Phantom Power, Sounds About Sound, the podcast where we explore sound in the arts and humanities. I'm Mac Haygood. My partner, Chris Cheek, is out vagabonding. It's summer. Uh, I caught sight of him via social media on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, as you hear this, he may be in London or Rome. Chris, if you're listening, I hope you brought your recorder with you. Pick up some good sounds for us. And yeah, it's summer, but there was something I wanted to share with you because it's hot off the audio presses. One of the really nice and unexpected fringe benefits of doing this show is we've started to get invites to come and talk to folks about how to do academic work in sound and what the potential of podcasting is in uh, the world of sharing ideas. And so I was giving one of those talks at the University of Iowa, and people were telling me, we have a PhD student who is doing her dissertation in podcast form. The author's name is Anna M. Williams, and her project is called My Gothic Dissertation. It's a study of the Gothic novel, something that many literary critics like Williams have studied in the past, but she does it in podcast form and she uses the Gothic novel as a venue, as an avenue into a critique of graduate school itself. So it's sort of this 
uh, narrative about being a graduate student, about the actual practice of writing a dissertation, and how that experience is in itself a very Gothic style experience. You totally do not have to be a literary scholar to understand and to, in fact, enjoy this podcast. It's a compelling project. Uh, it's really nicely produced. And it's a peek behind the curtain into what grad school is really like. It's as if I've been lured into a mind maze. Or, like the heroines of the literary genre that developed contemporaneously with the Enlightenment, the Gothic novel, maybe I've been lured into a crumbling ancient castle. What led me to this place is the prospect of a life devoted to literature, of professing it as a career. But once I arrived, the prospect of a professorship began promptly to fade from view like the gothic ghost that it is. And now I'm trapped here in this gothic castle known as grad school, with its intricate system of locked passageways, trap doors, and dead ends, all lorded over by the mysterious cult of the profession. The only way out for me, the intrepid heroine trembling with trepidation, is to figure out the secrets of the ancient cult. To gain some knowledge that, for the next 500 pages or so, will continue to evade my grasp. I've got to show my mastery of the rules of literary criticism, but at the same time critique them. I've got to outsmart the Baroque villain of the grad school gothic, the dissertation itself, by doing it while also simultaneously undoing it. And like those breast-heaving readers enraptured by the illicit world of the Gothic in the 18th and 19th centuries, you're invited along to witness my own daring PhD adventure. Because this is my Gothic dissertation. So like I said, this thing is hot off the presses, so hot, in fact, that the final episode has not yet been produced because that's the episode where Anna Williams defends her dissertation. So I don't even know if she defended it successfully. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Um, but I want to share an interview that I just did with her this morning. And then I'm also going to share a chapter that she did on the novel Frankenstein, because I think it's a really interesting reading that she does, and it's a lot of fun to listen to. So there were three primary things that I wanted to accomplish in this dissertation. And the first one was that it was my actual dissertation. And so I, I needed to make some kind of critical intervention. So what I ended up doing was um, highlighting some... Uh, under-recognized educational themes that run through the Gothic. The second thing that I wanted to accomplish was just to share the lived experience of what it's like to be a grad student in this particular historical moment in the humanities. Because I think there are a lot of hidden obstacles and a lot of them are emotional and psychological, and those things don't get talked about a lot. And so 
I was pointing out these like emotional factors, this kind of like emotional privilege that people have this like, oh, thick skin or whatever you want to call it, um, that helps certain people succeed more easily than others in academic settings. And then the third thing that I wanted to do, because I didn't want it to be purely critique, I wanted to offer some positive alternatives for how we might do better in graduate education to make things more accessible and just a healthier environment for education overall in general. One of the really distinctive things that I think is happening here is that you've written a dissertation that is in part a critical reflection on the process of writing a dissertation. Mm-hmm. So this idea of, of this sort of reflexive peek behind the curtain, and in fact, the podcast format itself, were those in the game plan from the beginning? They were. Um, the podcast part, especially, because I had... Um, I had kind of a revelation one day, this one day in the summer of 2016, I was out walking and listening to This American Life, and it was an episode in which Ira Glass and Hannah Jaffe-Walt were talking about um, their work-life balance in their 30s, which was like exactly where I was. I had just turned 30. I was trying to figure out what to do with my professional life. And they were both talking about how much they love their job. They love making radio and how difficult it was to balance that with um, like raising children and, and having friends and that kind of thing. And I was thinking like, God, I, maybe this is um, an unusual response, but I was like, I would love to have a job that I loved that much that I didn't (laughs) want to stop doing it at the end of the day. And then all of a sudden, like, I think this idea had been brewing for a long time because of the way that I was listening to This American Life as like a budding literary scholar. It just occurred to me, like, what they do is tell stories and then explain why those stories matter. And that's what we are supposed to be doing as literary critics, like at the very fundamental like level. So it just occurred to me, like, I could totally, <laughs> I could totally make a career doing literary criticism in the same kind of podcast format that has been so successfully pioneered by This American Life. And that very afternoon, um, when I got home from my walk, I went and I was like, you know, I'm going to see if Iowa Public Radio has any job openings um, just on a whim. They're probably not even based in Iowa City where I live, but I'm just going to check. Long story short, I ended up interning there for a year while I was writing my prospectus. So that is a very long way of telling you that, yes, the podcasting aspect of this project was that was first. The subject matter came second. What a cool story. And that that really like answers a question that I had, because, you know, this sort of self-reflexive move that you make uh, of dissertating about dissertating you know, I immediately heard that as being in the tradition of, you know, two decades of NPR and, and podcast shows um, since This American Life, right? I mean, like a mm-hmm. show like Sarah Koenig's Serial, you know, that show is as much about the process of reporting the story as it is about the story itself. Yeah, one of the things that I really liked about your project is you do what a dissertation is supposed to do, which is sort of like make a critical intervention into a specialized field, right? But at the same time, you also do what 
a dissertation almost never does, which is frame the work in a manner that is accessible to a wider audience. So being able to do that double move, I thought like showed a lot of sort of dexterity on your part as a, as a writer and as a producer of audio. Thank you. So in the spirit of that, I want to make sure that we define our terms. It's something I always try to do on the podcast. So what is a gothic novel? Sure. <laughs> so a lot of times people define what makes something a gothic novel based on like a certain set of characteristics that it has. So it's often set in like a medieval, an imaginary medieval past. And so that's where the term gothic originally comes from. Like it's referring to gothic architecture, which was, you know, the cathedrals and everything that were built, um, throughout Europe in the in the Middle Ages. That's the style of architecture. So the, the type of novel in which um, these characters are living and having their stories played out in uh, the medieval past, that's why they call it Gothic. So other characteristics are um, they often take place in castles or monasteries. So setting is really important. There will be usually some kind of supernatural element, or as in the case of Anne Radcliffe, um, something that seems supernatural at first, but is actually later, it has a totally um, rational explanation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's the typical move made by Scooby-Doo as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, there, and in the gothic too, like Scooby-Doo, there will be some kind of villain who is out for personal gain and they're trying to scare people away from um, discovering their plot uh, with these uh, supernatural or fake supernatural elements anyway. Um, So those are some of the main characteristics of a gothic novel. And the heyday of the gothic, people say, um, was from about you know, Horace Walpole, 1760s, up until about 1820, which is right after the publication of Frankenstein, which is one of the most famous examples of a Gothic novel. So early on, you talk about an influential approach to the Gothic novel among literature scholars, which sees the genre as a sort of critique of pre-modern institutions and ways of thinking, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, David Punter and Chris Baldick um, and Jared Hogel, I think, are three of the major critics who look at the Gothic that way. And then you extend this critique to the university itself. So you point out that the university is, in fact, a pre-modern institution. In a lot of ways, the university as we know it uh, began in the Middle Ages and the public imagination, I think, conjures up images of like uh, gothic style gray stone buildings with arches and covered in ivy when we think about um, the term university or college. And I mean, that just speaks to like the medieval roots of this institution. Hmm. So another element of the gothic that these critics have pointed out when 
the Gothic um, represents these medieval institutions, which typically are the Catholic Church and feudal aristocracy. Um, what they say the Gothic is critiquing about those institutions is the power dynamics that have traditionally um, ruled those places. So, so in the Gothic novel, we have these sort of sinister characters who have these shadowy institutions behind them. And mm -hmm. in grad school, you have the PhD advisor who's, you know, it's, it's a publisher parish situation for the student. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of sort of perhaps arcane symbols and, and rituals that the student perhaps doesn't entirely understand and yet needs to be initiated into in order yeah. to gain the approval of, of this figure. Exactly. And um, like described in this way, uh, I know that it sounds, um, I guess, melodramatic. And like, I'm totally aware of that. And the Gothic does have a lot of melodramatic elements to it. And so invoking the Gothic to describe um, the experience of the modern day graduate student is meant to be um, tongue in cheek. It's meant to be like partly humorous, but it's also meant to be partly serious um, because that was kind of the, the tone that I think the Gothic successfully struck. Um, and I or think, at least, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. And I think you successfully strike that tone through audio production, particularly the way you use music. So sometimes you're making this kind of argument or you're letting a character, a graduate student character speak about their experience and the music behind them <laughs> is a sort of melodramatic soundtrack, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not meant at all to like undercut what they're saying. Um, it's, it's actually meant to, to, evoke their psychological experience of what they're talking about um, because it can feel very confusing. Like you experience these things as very emotionally painful sometimes and trying, but when you share these things with people, sometimes it can feel hard to be believed. And so you can start to really doubt yourself. And then it's like this feeling like, you're, you don't have a right to feel the way that you're feeling. It, it's very, um, it's a complex emotional experience, which is another reason that I think um, the Gothic fits so well um, as a lens through which to view it because gaslighting um, is a phenomenon that often happens in the Gothic. And I think um, some form of that can happen in graduate school as well, even if it's not um, intentional. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, the concept of gaslighting in some of these gothic novels, you point out that, you know, there'll be a character and there's a perhaps a secret passage that enters into her bedroom and she finds evidence that someone has been opening this passageway into her bedroom and she's in this very insecure position. And then, you know, the master of the house is like, there's no secret passageway into your bedroom. Like, I don't know what you're talking about and you're being emotional, <laughs> right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so in what way does, is 
is the relationship with the grad school advisor like that, this sort of emotionally invalidating uh, relationship, as you put it? Well, I think it's hardly ever intentional, but I think that for that reason, there needs to be more intention around how PhD advisors interact with their advisees, because I think sometimes PhD advisors forget how much authority they have in the eyes of the people that they advise. Yeah. In terms of the advisee being invalidated, I think it happens often in terms of just inconsistency from one interaction to the next with the advisor. Like, And it could just be the advisor's busy and forgot that they told them last time something totally different than what they're telling them now. But for the <laughs> advisee, it feels so confusing and distressing. Yeah. I remember having that experience. And I'm so afraid that I've probably perpetuated the same thing as a professor at this point, you know? Well, I think that I'm, I am almost certain that I've done the exact same thing to my own students. Um, I, like I said, I don't think that it's intentional, like just being invested in, in knowing what their experience of you is and like seeking feedback and not being afraid of their feedback. Um, is is something that I think is really important for all of us to incorporate into our teaching practices, including myself. So I'm, I guess, a Gen Xer. I don't know how much <laughs> stock we should put in these in these uh, labels, mm-hmm. but I think what your project really made me think a lot about this criticism that I hear from people of my generation about millennials, that they're too thin-skinned or that the work environment has to change for them. And I'm always just like confused by that because I'm like, isn't that a good thing? Like they're like, <laughs> like the, the, the whole criticism seems to be like, well, why can't they just suck it up and just accept the same crappy things that we accepted? Do you have any thoughts about that? Sure. Um, so I just don't, personally like put a whole lot of stock into the like lumping everybody born in between certain years into a category as being like enough of the same to talk about. Yeah. But I, if I was going to um, accept the millennial category as something worth talking about, I think um, an entire group of like generally young people who are pushing for things to be different and for things to be better. Like, I don't understand why people would think of that as a bad thing, Um, especially if these are academic humanists who are making this argument about millennials. That seems really ironic to me (laughs) um, because like so much of post-structuralist theory has taught us to do the very thing that they're telling us we shouldn't be doing. That very attitude that you're describing of like, well, I went through this and I survived and I maybe am even better for having done it. So you have to do it too. And you should just suck it up. Yeah. Um, that is used as a rationale to cover like all manner of sins. If it's, if it's young people, mainly quote unquote millennials who are challenging these systems, like maybe it makes sense. Maybe um, it's because the times have changed. The economy has changed and the way that we train people needs to change too, like to, to fit better.
That's Anna Williams, PhD candidate in English at the University of Iowa and author of My Gothic Dissertation. And now, without further ado, let's listen to a chapter from Anna's dissertation. It is chapter two, entitled Frankenstein or the Modern Liftmaster, part one. Follow me, please. When Frederick Frankenstein inherits the estate of his grandfather Victor in the 1974 Mel Brooks classic Young Frankenstein, it's not the infamous laboratory or equipment that interests him the most. This is your home. It was your grandfather Victor's home. It's the library. The books. Well, seem to be quite a few books. This was Victor's the Barrett's Medical Library. And where is my grandfather's private library? I don't know what you mean, sir. Well, these books are all very general. Any doctor might have them in his study. This is the only library I know of, Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Well, we'll see. After initially being deflected by Cloris Leachman as Frau Blucher, the housekeeper of the estate, and, in this retelling, Victor Frankenstein's former lover. Frankenstein, played by Iowa's own Gene Wilder, eventually discovers a secret passageway that leads to what he desires. What is this place? Music room? But there's nothing here but books and papers. Books and papers? It is! This is my grandfather's private library. I feel it. Look. Look at this. Laid out on his grandfather's desk is a large volume with the comedic Mel Brooksian title, How I Did It, by Victor Frankenstein. The it, of course, being how he created his infamous monster. Frankenstein proceeds to read it from cover to cover. This is what he's been looking for all along. The precise knowledge of his grandfather's notorious work. The instructional guide for making a monster. The very thing he's been insisting he doesn't care about. Has distanced himself from with the revised pronunciation of his name. Frankenstein. As it turns out, he did care a little bit after all. Although the film Young Frankenstein purposely, even gleefully, reinscribes a lot of early Hollywood's inaccuracies in depicting Mary Shelley's work, things that were never actually in the novel, like the hunchbacked assistant, the gothic castle, the bolt of lightning causing the monster to come to life, Frankenstein's interest in his grandfather's books is actually a pretty insightful moment that harkens back to the 1818 text. Subtitled The Modern Prometheus, the original novel Frankenstein deals, like so many stories in Western civilization, with forbidden knowledge. It's a reference to the titan Prometheus, who, in ancient Greek mythology, disobeyed the wishes of Zeus and stole fire from Mount Olympus to give to the humans. This fire is often interpreted as a metaphor for the divine spark of knowledge that, once lit, can continue being kindled to become ever more large and powerful. 
And in the hands of the humans, it's not only life-giving, but also potentially destructive, in the literal sense that it, like, burns things, and also in the metaphorical sense that it challenges the omnipotence of the gods. The more the humans know, the less power the Olympians have over them. And this is why Zeus decreed that Prometheus would be chained to a rock and tortured forever, his liver being eaten out of him by eagles every day, only to regenerate overnight for the next round. Subtitling her novel The Modern Prometheus, cast Shelley's protagonist Victor Frankenstein as a similar figure who filches knowledge from the divine realm. Only he does so at the University of Ingolstadt in the late 18th century. There, after years of intense study in his rented student lodgings, he discovers the secret to creating human life. But here's where the insightful moment by Mel Brooks comes in. Frankenstein's years of intense study focused, among other things, on three ancient philosophers that people in positions of authority didn't want him reading. Old, forbidden books. The stuff of private libraries. And those who didn't want this modern Prometheus reading these things, the Zeuses of Mary Shelley's story, were Victor's own father, Alphonse Frankenstein, and one of his professors at the university, a crass old natural philosopher named Monsieur Kremp. And the ancient philosophers they didn't want Victor reading? Paracelsus. An arrogant and foolish Swiss. Albertus Magnus. His nonsense was exploded 500 years ago. Cornelius Agrippa. A sorcerer. An occultist. What is your name? Victor Frankenstein, sir. Of Geneva. This imagined first exchange between Victor and Kremp is from the 1994 film Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And it isn't far off from what Victor really says about his discouraging educational history in the novel, the occasion for which is often forgotten by modern readers. Shelley's story begins with a frame narrative, in which an ambitious naval explorer named Robert Walton finds a haggard, near-death Victor drifting across the Arctic Sea on an iceberg. His limbs were nearly frozen, and his body dreadfully emaciated by fatigue and suffering. I never saw a man in so wretched a condition. His startling appearance, coupled with the fact that Walton's ship is trapped motionless in a sea of ice, gives Victor good reason to tell his tale. Beginning with the early years growing up in Geneva, and how one summer he made a chance discovery that would change the course of his life forever. When I was 13 years of age, we all went on a party of pleasure to the baths near Throntum. The inclemency of the weather obliged us to remain a day confined to the inn. In this house, I chanced to find a volume of the works of Cornelius Agrippa. A new light seemed to dawn upon my mind. Agrippa was a 16th century theologian, and scholars have generally assumed the book Victor found was one of the three volumes of his De Occulta Philosophia, or Of Occult Philosophy, a kind of compendium of both learned and folk ideas about magic. Victor recalls how dazzled he was by his discovery, but when he presented the book to his father, he, quote, looked carelessly at the title page, recognized Agrippa's name. Ah, Cornelius Agrippa. And said, My dear Victor, do not waste your time upon this. It is sad trash. 
After recounting this memory, Victor pauses to tell Walton that, on reflection, it's this moment that set into motion the series of events that would lead him to create a monster and bring about his life's ruin. And this is important because, as far as I know, no other literary scholars have given this moment the credit it's due. Frankenstein has widely, famously, been read as a novel about hubris, overreaching ambition, and pride. People consider Victor's conquering of human mortality to be motivated by an impulse to challenge the power of God and achieve personal immortality through fame. But in my reading, it's not God that Victor's challenging. It's his teachers. Those who cast themselves as the mortal keepers of knowledge, who can dictate to Victor what is sad trash and what is not. And what he really wants isn't fame, Rather, it's to redeem the work that so captivated his imagination. To show his father and Krimp not only that they were wrong in trying to forbid him from reading those books, but also that the forbidding of any knowledge from interested students is just... bad pedagogy. I cannot help remarking here the many opportunities instructors possess of directing the attention of their pupils to useful knowledge, which they utterly neglect. In other words, when they say things like... Do not waste waste your time time upon upon this. this. It It is is sad sad trash. trash. This moment at the end with his father is the first in a series of intellectual confrontations, episodes of what Sherry Truffin would call epistemic violence, that caused Victor to rebel. As he tells Walton, had his father had a little more patience, had he taken the time to explain that, quote, modern science had disproven Agrippa's theories and therefore had, quote, much greater powers, then, Victor says, he probably would have dropped it. But, like Prometheus challenging Zeus, Victor was only made more defiant by his father's cursory glance, the careless brushing off of his intellectual curiosity and enthusiasm. He doubled down in his obsession with the occult, determined to demonstrate the worthiness of his interests, despite his father's attempts to divert them, to deem them unworthy of serious pursuit, to block his access with shame. Lot is full now. Please wait. On a dreary morning in November, about six months after passing my prospectus, I'm in my 2008 Honda Accord, a slowly drifting iceberg, stranded in a sea of cars, waiting to get into the parking lot of the EPB, the English Philosophy Building. We're all just idling here impatiently, waiting for people to exit the lot so we can enter. It's a one-in, one-out situation you'd expect from some kind of nightclub, only the spot we're waiting to enter is actually four and a half floors of poorly lit, brutalist architecture that was recently voted the ugliest building in the state of Iowa. Still, though, it's a campus hotspot because it houses two underfunded general education courses that every student is required to take. Rhetoric and the interpretation of literature, which is what I need to get in to teach. Okay, um, I am in my car. Hold on, gotta move up. Two people, actually three people, just gave up in front of me, um, turned around, and um, drove away. But I'm gonna go try to talk to some of the other people who are sitting in line. 
On this day, it begins to dawn on me that this whole parking lot situation feels like a metaphor for the general feeling of blocked access that's plagued me through this entire grad school experience. And since I have a kit of recording equipment from the radio essays class I'm taking, I work up the nerve to get out and interview the people in front of me. I want to know who they are, why they need to get into the lot, and if they find this situation as frustrating as I do. The first car I approach is a blue Mercedes SUV. The driver seems startled, but agrees to talk to me. How long have you been waiting in this line? I think it's already 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, do you have a class in there? Oh, yeah, I have class. It's on the Linquist Center, I think. Yeah. The Linquist okay. Center. Probably the second ugliest building in the state of Iowa. It houses the education department. He tells me that he's an undergrad, a sophomore, and he waits in this line three days a week, like me. So basically, my classes start at 12.30, so, you know, I always come here at 11.40, you know, and uh, maybe always wait to the 12 turn. I think I can go in and find the park lot. 30 minutes to get in. Pretty typical. That giant work whistle, by the way, is at the nearby power plant, and it signals that it's now 12 o'clock, meaning 30 minutes is also the amount of time I have before I should be calling roll in front of my classroom. Sorry, did I scare you? Yeah, it's just a little bit. <laughs> um, I'm doing a radio story on the APB parking lot line. Would you be willing to answer a couple questions for me? Sure. Okay, so um, what's your name? Uh, Paola. Okay, hi Paola, I'm Anna. Um, so how long have you been waiting in this line today? Um, I've been waiting approximately one hour. One hour? Yeah. I find out that Paola is another undergraduate so, student. And unlike most, she's not actually waiting to get into a class. She's been in this line for an hour, she tells me, because she needs to pick up a computer from her friend. So the person like can't leave the building and obviously I can't like park my car and go in. So I'll just wait it out, which is fine. I currently don't have anything to do, so it all works out. Unfortunately, I do have something to do. So for me, it doesn't really all work out. But I thank Paola for her time anyway and move on. I did this thing for three days, getting out of my car and interviewing the people in front of me. And each time, every single person I talked to was an undergraduate student. One of them was one of my undergraduate students. Hi, Thomas. I'm Anna. You look familiar. Were you one of my students? Yeah, first rhetoric class. Yeah. Yeah, you were my rhetoric student. Hey, how are you doing? As nice as it is to see them, it doesn't feel quite right to be competing for resources with my own students. But what also doesn't feel right is that while I was conducting all these interviews with the undergrads in front of me, there was something else happening too. Right beside us, there was this other line that we were all restricted from entering. Or really, it's kind of a non-line because there's never anyone in it. It's reserved for faculty members, and periodically, as we were talking, they would zoom past us and enter the lot with their prepaid passes. No 30-minute wait. Not even a one-minute wait. They'd just pull up, swipe a card, and go right in. And if that's not frustrating enough, once they got through the gate, there'd also be these large swaths of empty parking spaces on reserve for them, just lying in wait to receive their Subarus and Volkswagens, taunting all of us in the plebeian line. Every time a faculty member would zoom past, I'd ask the undergrad I was interviewing how they felt about it, including this junior named Shayna. At first she said that no one should get special privileges, but then she made one important caveat. Um, no, no, 
I don't I don't think so. Besides teachers, because I know they're that's important for them to be there on time, but they already have, so they can go like they can go ahead and go in. So, well, actually, I'm a teacher. Teachers already have a line. She was saying, the one people were zooming past us in. And when I revealed to her that I'm a teacher, she seemed kind of shocked at first. But then she asked something pretty telling. Are you like, do you lead discussion or are you like a teacher of like the? The question is whether I'm a real teacher or merely a discussion leader. A graduate teaching assistant who does things like take attendance, grade papers, and lead breakout discussion groups once a week for large lecture classes. Still a person, for the record, who does very important things and deserves reliable access to their workplace. And I did serve as a discussion leader for Intro to the English Major when I first came here back in 2013. But for the past four years, I've been independently teaching the same intro-level courses as the faculty members in my department, even though I'm still technically called an assistant. Unwittingly, Shana's question revealed the divide she and many others seem to see between grad students and real teachers. The divide between me and the ones that can glide right past this gate. Just like the line for the EPB parking lot, only so many make it through this gauntlet of PhD work in the United States. According to the Council of Graduate Schools, only about 50% of students who start doctoral programs in the humanities will finish, at least in their first 10 years. And while that may seem like a long time, according to a 2016 report by the Modern Language Association, the average number of years it takes to complete a PhD in the humanities is 9.2. To get an MD, that is to be a medical doctor entrusted with other people's lives, takes just eight years of grad school. Of course, that doesn't include all of the residencies that follow, but still, postdocs are a common path for humanities PhDs as well. Meaning that in the United States, the time it takes to be able to teach Shakespeare to college kids is not all that different from the time it takes to be able to perform surgery on them. Why? What could possibly be so important about teaching college lit courses that it takes this long for someone to prove they're worthy of doing it? Who or what are the lift masters in that process? And what is the freaking holdup? For those of us trapped in the pursuit of our English PhDs, lift masters come in many forms. And a lot of them are psychological. Lot is full now. Please wait. Now back in the car, I'm stuck idling indignantly behind this lift master again. The master of lifting or not lifting the gate. And from here, I can't help but see its unwavering arm, as reminiscent of another kind of barrier I'm stuck behind as well. My own feeling of intellectual subordination at this stage in my career. It's as if the 12-foot reflective steel arm morphs before my eyes into the Alphonses and crimps of my own education story. The ones who, in their well-intentioned and less blunt way, have nevertheless told me my ideas are sad trash and not worth pursuing. Because every step so far, my comps exam, the prospectus meeting, it all feels like trying to prove that my ideas, my interests and powers of perception, are enough to grant me access to some kind of PhD promised land, my own personal spot in academia. 
Each time, it feels like I'm being asked to produce some sort of pass that adheres to a set of English discipline rules I don't completely understand. And I've managed to keep producing one up until this point that somehow, bafflingly, turned out to be valid. But every time, it seems to be just barely so. And it's just bareliness makes my ability to produce it the next time even less sure-footed, because I've lost faith in its validity. In my validity. I feel ashamed that such important people seem to find my perspective so flawed, but at the same time, like with Victor, there's this hard-headed persistence, too. Through all of this, it feels like the only thing keeping me from being one of those 50% that turn around and give up, maybe driving to the nearest marketing firm or Starbucks drive through to submit a resume, is my own sheer stubbornness. This conviction that I do deserve a spot in that lot. I'm more than just some undergrad who needs to pick up a computer from her friend. And in this process of getting my PhD, the more I feel like I'm being treated that way, like some frivolous underling on a mundane mission, easily brushed off and invalidated, the more hard-headed I become. When Victor arrives at the University of Ingolstadt in some undisclosed year of the late 18th century, he's immediately met with more disregard of his interests, another unyielding gate standing between him and what he wants to study. Soon after arrival, he meets with Monsieur Crimp, and although it occurs a bit differently in the novel than in the film version you heard earlier, the outcome is pretty much the same. He received me with politeness and asked me several questions concerning my progress in the different branches of science appertaining to natural philosophy. I mentioned, it is true, with fear and trembling, the only authors I had ever read upon those subjects. The professor stared. Sure enough, in response to Victor's meek proposal of his academic interests, Crimp assumes the familiar position of indifferent authority, scoffing, have you really spent your time in reading such nonsense? Every minute, every instant that you have wasted on those books is utterly and entirely lost. You have burdened your memory with exploded systems and useless names. Good God! In what desert land have you lived, where no one was kind enough to inform you that these fancies which you have so greedily imbibed are a thousand years old, and as musty as they are ancient? I little expected in this enlightened and scientific age to find a disciple of Albertus Magnus and Paracelsus. My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew. Although Victor claims he was, quote, not disappointed because he had long considered those authors useless, thanks to his father, he still harbors an admiration for them and feels contempt for modern scientists. Because why is it, exactly, that Monsieur Kremp and Alphonse Frankenstein are so quick to disregard Victor's interests? A lot of critics take the answer for granted, but really, why exactly are Agrippa, Paracelsus, and Albertus Magnus sad trash and nonsense? This matters a lot in my reading of the novel, which I see as a sort of tale of two Victors, one pre-creature and one post. Pre-creature Victor is the one with the interest in the occult, a curious student whose imagination has been kindled and who thinks he's found something valuable that his teachers have overlooked. Despite their discouragement, he secretly pursues those interests in an effort to prove them wrong, which turns out to work. 
Combining occult knowledge with modern science, Victor discovers the method to reanimate dead matter, which is an astounding accomplishment in the realm of human knowledge. Victor was right about the potential of those forbidden books all along. The only thing that makes the creature into a monster was Victor's abandonment of it, which I read as a moment in which he becomes a turncoat, a traitor to his own convictions, a sellout who gives in to his intellectual detractors. So again, I ask, what exactly were those detractors saying? What message about science and knowledge did Victor internalize from his father and Crimp that led to the making of a monster? What epistemic gate had been constructed in modern science that Victor worked all those years to furtively tear down, only to end up abandoning it and siding with the liftmasters after all? To answer this question for myself, I reached out to Paul Minot, a history professor at Middlebury College and author of Solomon's Secret Arts, a book about attitudes toward the occult during the Age of Enlightenment. Professor Minot was overseas in Oxford at the time, so our Skype connection here is a little less than optimal. But I asked him why someone like Victor's father, a magistrate for the government of Geneva in the late 18th century, would have called Agrippa sad trash. Well, it wasn't taken very seriously by that time. I mean, it, was, it was regarded as a product of superstition and as something that had more to do with um, the period of, in which it was written, then it, it, it had more to say to pre-Reformation society, even though Agrippa was a Protestant, probably, we're not certain of that. Um, and the reputation of Geneva was for a sort of Calvinist rationalism. Uh, so it's, it's not at all surprising that that would be the case. The image of Geneva is of a very straight-laced, rationalistic society. And so I think this is meant to bolster that image in the mind of the reader. I see. He's referring, of course, to John Calvin, the puritanical theologian best known for his theory of predestination. 200 years before, Calvin had promoted the Protestant Reformation from Geneva, and his brand of rationalism, or the belief that reason always trumps emotion, is reflected in his theory that all human wisdom consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of oneself. Knowledge of God, and here's the rational part, can only be attained through the reading of scripture and the exercise of one's reason in interpreting that scripture. Unlike this text and reason-centric theory of knowledge, occultists like Agrippa believes that the knowledge of God could be attained through secrets embedded in nature itself. Minot talked about this when I asked him about Albertus Magnus, who's not actually in the book Solomon's Secret Arts because, as it turns out, he was never really an occultist. And um, those who think that, you know, this nature holds occult secrets, written revelations, um, come to believe that Albertus was somehow privy to them in the same way King Solomon was privy to them. I mean, this is the, this is the myth of Solomon on which the title of the book is based. Um, the, the idea that Solomon had this knowledge of all things in the world and um, because he had that knowledge, he knew also the hidden things in the world. And the hidden things in the world were secrets that were put there by God that would 
could raise you to a higher spiritual plane. So, being thinkers of the occult tradition, Agrippa and Paracelsus believed that nature held secret, divine knowledge that, if humans could find it, would bring them closer to God. Or, according to their pious critics, could usurp the divine knowledge of God that humans were never meant to wield. But for a Calvinist rationalist like Alphonse Frankenstein, the belief that knowledge could be attained this way would have looked like superstition. Naive, magical thinking that he didn't want his son falling for. This debate surrounding the way we know things is also what Kremp seems to take up when he calls the work of Agrippa and the like nonsense and exploded systems. But of course, Victor didn't rely on mere superstition or magical thinking to gain his knowledge. He combined the old with the new. In my reading, it was never that he wanted to prove that the old way was the right one, just that the rationalist distinction his father and Krimp were making was too simplistic and close-minded. Sure, Victor came to Ingolstadt devoted to his medieval occult philosophers, but he did delve into the modern sciences with, quote, an ardor that was the astonishment of his fellow students and a proficiency that awed his teachers, including Kremp. Within two years, Victor tells Walton, he had maxed out his teachers' abilities. By their own admission, he had nothing left to learn from them, and so he was considering leaving Ingolstadt and going home. What made him decide to stay was the decision to set off on a kind of independent study to answer this question that had continued to nip at his mind, a vestige of his still lingering admiration of occult philosophy. One of the phenomena which had peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame, and indeed, any animal endued with life. Whence, I often ask myself, did the principle of life proceed? In other words, what makes things alive? It was a bold question, and one which has ever been considered as a mystery. Yet with how many things are we upon the brink of becoming acquainted if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries? He decides to be brave and break through that careless restraint. Combining his advanced skills in the modern sciences, things like anatomy, chemistry, physics, biology, with the occult belief that such a question can be answered, Victor goes on to fulfill his quest. He proves that modern and occult science aren't mutually exclusive, as his father and Krimp would have him believe. It's alive. He guns it through that intellectual gate and earns himself a permanent spot in any academic lot he desires. And then he gives it all up. But that's next time in my Gothic dissertation. Back to my own dreary morning, or now afternoon, in November. It's 12.21, I'm second in line, and someone's leaving. Oh no! There's a faculty member creeping up in the other... in the other, um, lane. Thomas hasn't pressed the... Okay, Thomas is pressing the button, but I think that when these faculty members go in, I won't be able to go in. Let's see what happens. Okay, Thomas is going. Here I go. Two faculty members both press the button before me. Please press the button and take the parking ticket. Sweet. Please take the parking ticket. Please enter following the garden. Up goes the liftmaster, and in I drive to find a place to park after 36 minutes spent in the car behind my own former student. 
I now have nine more before the beginning of my class, which translates to just enough time to find a spot, gather my motley assortment of bags, get inside, drop the motley assortment of bags in my basement office, and dash up to my second floor classroom. There will be 50 minutes of discussing Wuthering Heights, then an hour back in the basement coaching students on their essays or, alternately, fielding grade complaints about their essays, then another 50 minutes of discussing Wuthering Heights with another set of students. Finally, I'll gather my belongings and head home to keep working on my dissertation. And after two more days, I'll be back to do it all again. Because I'm chained to this rock for as long as it takes me to finish writing this thing. It's kind of the inverse of Prometheus's liver, actually. After what feels like an eternity behind the gate, my past keeps materializing just in time. Only to disappear, for me to remake all over again the next round. Like this chapter, now complete, but dissipating into the stark realization that, after all of this, I have to write another one. And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Thanks to Anna Williams for being on the show. Her podcast does not have a home yet, but you can hear more excerpts at her website. The link is in the show notes for this podcast and on our website, where, as always, you can learn more about Phantom Power and find transcripts and links to the things we talked about, as well as find previous episodes of the show. It's all at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you would rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Today's show was edited by me, Mac Haygood, with music from Neil Parsons' 8-Bit Bach album. We'll put a link to the Bandcamp page for that in our show notes. And our intern is Gina Moravec. Phantom Power is produced with support from the Robert H. and Nancy J. Blaney Endowment, the Miami University Humanities Center, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. <laughs>